Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Chris Chan. Chris is a hometown hero. He is a dedicated urbanist, a multimodal transportation advocate, urban canoeist, and the former executive director of Bike Edmonton, an important nonprofit in my hometown. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Narco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find their partner link on our website. Friends. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a really exciting one for me. I've gotten to talk to a lot of heroes, but not now I've got a hometown hero. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So you're a bit of a local legend in my hometown. And for a lot of people that don't know where my hometown is, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, northernmost major city in North America at 53 degrees lat- longitude, latitude, which is, for American listeners is the southern tip of Alaska. So we're up here and we've got an incredible cycling community here. And you are one of the forebearers of that community. So, Chris, tell me how you got into cycling. Where did your cycling journey start? Oh, well, I don't know about being the forebearer. Like I, (laughs) well, we'll get to that, I guess. (laughs) So for me, I started cycling when I was in university. I actually didn't start cycling in Edmonton. I'm not from Edmonton originally. I moved to Edmonton for school, but then I went to Waterloo for a co-op term. And while I was in Waterloo, so when I was in Edmonton for my first couple of years, I was just taking transit and I lived near the LRT. So that was pretty easy. But when I went to Waterloo, it's a much smaller town. They have an LRT now, but back then they didn't. And it was just really terrible getting around by transit in Waterloo, like it. It was big enough that, that you couldn't really walk everywhere, but small enough that their transit system was just terrible, essentially. And so I found a place called Recycle Cycles, which was pretty similar to, to what Bike Edmonton was back then as well, and bought a used bike from them for $10 and rode around that for the summer. And when I came back to Edmonton, I was like, that was really nice. I really enjoyed that. And so I found Bike Edmonton, which at the time was called Edmonton Bicycle Commuters. And we're in a back alley. And it took me a while to find the location. And it was just this, you walk into this back alley through this yard full of bike carcasses and into the door that was just packed full of, of people all working on bikes in various states of disrepair. And that was my introduction to, to EBC as it was known at the time, Bike Edmonton. And that's when I really started cycling. Like I did bike that summer in Waterloo, but I was just, I didn't really think about it. I just got the bike to get around and I didn't really have a cycling community or anything like that. It was just a a tool. And in many ways, it still is a tool for me and how I use it. But now there's so much more community and lifestyle built around it as well. So EBC has evolved into the Bike Edmonton Society, which you are now the past executive director. So tell us about that evolution and the society. So EBC was founded in 1980 by essentially a bunch of activists. Some of the early people involved, like if you look back, not, I don't think right at the beginning, but Tucker Gomberg for people who have longtime Edmonton people will recall Tucker as a former city councilor, as well as just a activist along with his partner, Angela Bischoff, and a bunch of other people who are still involved a lot in the community in many ways, kind of started up EBC back in 1980 as an advocacy organization to promote cycling in Edmonton, which at the time was still very much considered like an environmentalist fringe kind of activity for a lot of people. And you kind of see it in the types of people that were drawn to the organization back then. After a few years, they also added on kind of bike repair component, like shop component to the organization. Still in the early 80s, I believe. The history is a bit fuzzy, but as far as we know, that bike shop, which has gone through various forms, including just being like the back of someone's van to like unheated Quonset huts in industrial areas to now where we have a bike shop just in Old Strathcona and its second one in downtown Edmonton. As far as we know, it is the oldest community bike workshop in North America in, in its various forms. 
So, and by quite a long shot too, I think the next closest one is maybe a shop in New York, but uh, yeah. So it's gone through a lot of different phases as an organization and done a lot of different things. They were a lot of the EBC folk were heavily involved in the rails to trails program that saw that path that connects from along the streetcar line from the high level bridge north towards McEwen, especially south of Jasper Ave, that used to just be a grassy berm that you couldn't really walk or bike along. And that, that predates my time in Edmonton. And so I've seen photos of it and it's wild to just look at that. Like one of the most heavily used trails in the city and to see that it was just nothing there previously up until the nineties, I think the late nineties actually, and you would have had to just like go on the road adjacent to that rail line. Folks listening, I mean, this is connecting our downtown core to our university hub, to major destinations in our city. And for those who don't know our city, it's a city of a million people. So that's a lot of traffic and they're really quite busy. And without that, there's really no safe corridor unless you're in a vehicle to get from one hub of the city to the other. Yeah. Yeah. And the city has bike counters and bike and pedestrian counters along that corridor. And it is the most heavily trafficked corridor in the city for active transportation. Yeah, that used to just not exist there until quite late in the game, as it were. So EBC, Bicycle Commuters, became Bike Edmonton in, I think, 2018 to kind of reflect that old name, Edmonton Bicycle Commuters Society. One, it's just a mouthful, but two, it so heavily emphasized the kind of commuting aspect of cycling and, and indeed cycling as an identity, like being a bike commuter that we really wanted to get away from. Because one of my things is that it really doesn't matter what your motivations are for cycling. I don't care why you want to cycle or why you do it. The benefits to yourself individually, like for your health, for your pocketbook, for your mental well-being, those benefits to the individual and to the society in terms of having less demand for road space and parking and the environmental costs. Everyone benefits from those positive aspects of cycling, regardless of what your reasons are. So I don't need to convince someone that they need to identify as a bike commuter or that they need to bike 100% of the time or that they need to not race on the weekends or do anything like it doesn't matter if you ride a bike instead of driving a car for any given trip and even if you just go out recreationally you will get all of those benefits society will gain all of those benefits and we all win and so kind of getting away from that kind of identity of the cyclist of the commuter cyclist specifically and just opening it up to be like you know what you want a bike we want to support you and we want to make it easier to make that choice for whatever your reasons are. That was kind of behind that name change to Bike Edmonton. And I mean, we'd already seen it in the people that were coming through our shops and the people that we were talking to. And of course, in, in the streets of Edmonton, we already were running like lots of programs for kids and including like kids with disabilities and different kinds of things that were like, these are they don't care about the word commuter. They're not going to work. And that's fine. One of the first ways that I found out about you was a program where for younger people, they can work off or volunteer off the cost of their bike. And I thought that was so important and just so special, sort of eliminating the cost barrier to entry while also providing education. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I guess first, generally, a bit more background on Bike Edmonton. Our organization does advocacy and, and education and outreach, but also has two volunteer-run community bike workshops where people donate bikes and bike parts, and then the public can come in and buy used bikes, buy parts. And we have volunteer mechanics who teach people how to fix their bikes. And so you can get really affordable bikes and keep your own bike on the road really affordably. And you don't need to know anything or have any tools because we've got the volunteer mechanics to teach people. But even then, and that those two aspects, the advocacy and the community workshops in a lot of other cities, those are split into separate organizations that, that do those two things, but our organization does it all. And but even then we've got these used bikes that you can buy as is or refurbished, but that's still out of reach for for many people. And so we've long struggled with how do we make it even more accessible for people who can't afford it. And so we've had various programs throughout the years trying to grapple with that and provide that service. One of the longest running ones 
programs that we've had is called Bespoke. And that works with youth aged, I think it's 12 to 17. Uh, and they come in over six to seven weeks. And we have mentors. Some of the mentors are previous youth graduates from the same program. And some of them are just adults and work with kids to pick out a bike that they want to work on and that they want to own and ride. And then over the next month and a half, come in once a week and we feed them and we, we work on the bikes with them and refurbish those bikes. And then at the end of it, everyone goes on a graduation ride and there's no cost for the families or the youth that participate. And it's a really great kind of mentorship thing. It's almost more about the relationships that they build and this kind of soft skills that they develop working with other people than it is about mechanical skills or even again, the bike itself is not really the goal necessarily for us, for the youth, maybe the bike, but, but yeah. And so that program actually started in 2010 as a partnership with the, with the, kind of the police and it's something called a neighborhood empowerment team that the Edmonton police service had working in some areas with higher crime rates. And so initially we started working with youth who had been involved in bike crime, bike related crimes. Some of that was bike theft and similar things. And in the meantime, we've now opened it up to just all youth, but we do still focus a lot on youth at risk, youth that just have like more challenging backgrounds and, and just some of them come from group homes and some of them are from just schools or other kind of uh, places that refer to us. And some of them are just youth that randomly hear about the program and are super interested in bikes. And so that's been really nice too, because now we have this mix of youth, mix of mentors who are who include youth and adults and you just have this kind of diverse range of people all in one room working on bikes together and interacting with people that they may not actually come across in their day-to-day -day lives that that much or in in as kind of like intimate and strong ways so yeah the spoke is a really great program and it's it's still kind of small because we just haven't been able to kind of garner the resources and funding to to make it into a really kind of big standalone program on its own. So we'd love to be able to, but one of the aspects of being a relatively small nonprofit with a small number of staff and a small budget, trying to do all of these things, running two community bike workshops, doing advocacy in the city, outreach and education, and running all of these other programs as well means that in a lot of ways, like I will describe programs and describe how we help Bike Edmonton runs and it sounds so good and it feels so good. And then when you kind of peek behind the curtains a little bit, you're like, oh, this program, this organization is over capacity, under-resourced and everything's kind of running on fumes in a lot of ways, a lot of the times. And it's not a unique story, but, but there it is. No, and I think that every nonprofit, but certainly the impact in the community of what you're doing and all of those, all the labor and blood, sweat and tears from yourself and the, the volunteers and staff that are there, you see it throughout the entire community. And you said that the bike shop has become a community. Tell me about that a little bit. So when I started cycling, it was basically limited transportation options, both in Waterloo. And then when I came back to Edmonton, I realized I don't really like chasing down buses, knowing that the next bus might not come for, for another 45 minutes and just like running after buses. I just have very vivid, it's not even a specific memory, but just the feeling uh, of running after a bus in the dark winter in Edmonton through the snow, breathing in that cold air as you're running and thinking, I'm going to miss this bus. And I've got my like heavy backpack full of textbooks, everything. And I think it's also not an uncommon story in Edmonton and probably many other North American cities. A lot of the people who, who bike for transportation in Edmonton, especially the year round cyclists came to it because they got tired of Edmonton transit. And I love transit as a concept, support it. And I wanted to have better funding, but it can be difficult to rely on it for your, and it's been getting better, but it, it can be difficult still to rely on it for your everyday transportation needs. So I came to cycling kind of just as like, the def I don't really want to spend money on a car. Certainly when I was a student, I couldn't afford it. But then also for like my personal values, owning a car was not a, has never been a priority for me. And so I was definitely getting to the point of your question, but now I forgot your question. You, you were moving in that direction. How the bike shop became a community, how it went uh, beyond a tool to a community. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so I started cycling basically 
just as it seemed like a affordable, accessible transportation option for me. I didn't get into it because I knew people who cycled or because I saw some group activity that I, that I wanted to be a part of. And in fact, I found Recycled Cycles and then I found the Edmonton Bicycle Commuters because I was just searching for a cheap used bicycle on the internet and that's what came up. But what I found the first time I walked into Bikeworks was what the shop was called at the time, was just all of these people really excited about bicycles, but also a lot of the kind of cloud of values around the people who would want to use a bicycle to get around the city. And so you have a lot of people who are really frugal, like me, people who care about the environment. And you have people who are neither of those things, but maybe they love the mechanical aspects or maybe they love just like riding bicycles. And it, it's interesting because you generally have similar values, but not necessarily in, except insofar as whatever the commonality of the bicycle brings. And so, so you get a pretty wide mix of class, people from different classes and people from different backgrounds, still pretty white and still pretty male as mechanical things and, and sports things <laughs> can be. But, but yeah, you start just talking about bikes. You start talking about your complaints about biking in the city and you kind of develop bonds in kind of these shared experiences. It's, and in a lot of ways, riding a bicycle for transportation in a North American city that certainly at that time when I started biking, didn't really provide space or like safe space or any kind of consideration for biking gives people kind of a lot of the shared experiences of what it is to be also a minority in a place of being being sometimes quite actively pushed to the side having your safety not feel certain in spaces and feeling like you're kind of sharing this common struggle with people who in many cases are wealthy and white men yeah yeah it really is the great equalizer when human body versus car it really doesn't matter where you came from or anything about you personally everyone is on the same level when it comes to human body versus giant metal machine yeah and it's easy to forget even that like to just be going around Edmonton and kind of feel like kind of assume that this is a typical North American city. And then you go to some other cities that are denser and you realize that, oh, our cars are much larger and take up more space in Alberta than they do in many other places. We have a lot more pickup trucks and SUVs than even like Vancouver or Toronto would. And the dynamics of biking on the street here versus other cities, it is quite different. And in some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. But you definitely feel, you are made to feel small and it's not an accident. Yeah, I I agree. I come back and forth out of the city. I'll spend months away doing one project and then I'm back for months at a time. And I always sort of have to reorient myself. But one of the things I really noticed, maybe four or five years ago, the pandemic makes everything a little fuzzy, is, is when I came back, the diversity of people, because there's bike meetups across the city and we'll talk about that. But it seems that the diversity had sort of exploded in terms of having more people of color, more women, more families. What's your insight? How did we make that happen? Because it's so great. Yeah, it also kind of snuck up on me. And when you contacted me to, about doing this podcast interview, I was trying to think like, oh no, I have not actually actively done a lot of work in trying to encourage people of color and, and other like people who are underrepresented to to bike more in Edmonton, I, like, what can I point to? And like thinking, listening to some of your previous interviews with people who are like really focused on like, I am going to make this more accessible to these people who are not here right now. How do I do that? And for me, like we have, we've done stuff. We have, for instance, a women, transgender and gender non-binary program at our shops, which unfortunately have been suspended during the pandemic. But, you know, we've done that to try to get some more people who are not cis white men involved in that kind of bike mechanics side of things. But, but as far as like more broadly speaking, we haven't had those resources to really focus on like, we're going to do this program to get new newcomers riding bikes and stuff like that, even though it's something that we've like, we've put in grant applications for, and we've really been thinking about it for many years, but we haven't actually done, actively done that work in really tangible ways a lot of the time. And yeah, you go out on the street and you see, wow, there's so many different people. There's, there's families with young kids. There's people who are like many people of color. I think you mountain bike in Edmonton. I don't know if you'd call what I do mountain biking, but I do go out on the single track. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, yeah. So if you go out, if you've been out on the single track in the past few years, you'll see, you'll, you will definitely get passed by groups of Filipino dudes biking along and having a blast. And, and I went for a walk on one of the River Valley trails last summer and the majority of people who were biking by me, and this wasn't just mountain biking. This was people who were probably like just students going out for a picnic or something like that. and just having a nice afternoon. But the majority of people who passed me riding bikes were people of color. And my experience of Edmonton is not a lot of people of color. It's a very white city, or at least it had been. And certainly when you get onto those, like those trails and not just biking, but even just being in the parks and the green spaces in the city generally, you you see these days a lot more people and particularly biking in, in the urban cycling context. I think a lot of that, especially for like those younger families and women and things like that is we have protected bike lanes now. We have good bike infrastructure now. And we have always known that by providing safe places to ride, you will increase the diversity of the people riding. And when you say, I, I don't feel like I've done you know, that we have done much broadly in those communities, you've been one of the biggest advocates of ensuring safe infrastructure in all parts of our city and community, not just in the downtown core and sort of the wealthier areas to the West, making sure that accessibility is equal across the city has been one of your main motivators. And I think that is certainly contributory to the diversity of people we're seeing out there now. Yeah, we try. <laughs> like, it's hard for a lot of cities to grapple with this because as you're taking, as a city is taking its kind of baby steps towards building good bike infrastructure and providing that bike infrastructure, which most cities in North America over the past decade has, that's where they've been. They've been starting those baby steps. You want to, you kind of, Politically, you need to do it in places where there's a lot of latent demand, which often ends up being in your kind of downtown cores, which are usually quite wealthy. And those kinds of central areas where certainly in, in like the American context, you've had a lot of, you end up in places that already have received a lot of investment, where you're also now putting in those bike lanes, both because they're, they're the people who have the leisure to ride and the people who can afford to live in those areas and the people who can have the time and the experience to advocate for that infrastructure. But, and I don't think Edmonton has deviated from that. We kind of put in some very not good painted bike lanes just randomly across the city about a decade ago. And then we removed a lot of it. And then we built our protected bike network, which was downtown in the central core. The advocates were like, one of the main advocates was the VP of engineering consulting firm, as well as a lot of community activists and advocates. And now we've demonstrated that this works and it's great and there's a lot of demand for it. And now how do we get it to other areas of the city? Because now we have that momentum of like, oh, you just want to, you want to have a cohesive network. So maybe you just expand it out from what already exists. And do we look at Northeast Edmonton, which has a lot of immigrants and lots of people of color and is relatively low income and very underserved in terms of bike infrastructure. It's, it's really not nice to bike around. So, and then how do you advocate to have bike infrastructure there when you can't necessarily show that there's a lot of demand currently because it's not nice to bike there. So nobody does bike there. So you can't point to that and you don't have a lot of advocates necessarily living over there because of the moved to the central or central areas, even if they were originally from those neighborhoods. And so, um, really try to keep that lens of like, I can't just advocate for the stuff that serves me personally or serves the people who are like me necessarily, but really thinking about that bigger picture of who are we missing and who do we need to reach out to and who do we need to think about in, in much more kind of holistic ways. And it's hard. So. It is. And it seems like municipal governments have a, if you build it, they will come attitude towards all infrastructure except bike infrastructure. Yeah. We often use the kind of analogy of bridges over rivers and like, how can you measure demand for a bridge? Are you looking at the people, number of people swimming across the river to <laughs> determine whether or not there's demand for a bridge? But I think quite thankfully and quite hopefully our current city council, we've got Lots of young people and lots of urban planners, which is something to say that, and lots of people who bike, 
on city council right now. And I think that understanding that as well as actually in administration, like coming up with the kind of engineering plans and like the kind of those kinds of proposals. So I think people are finally starting to really understand that we just need broad investment across the whole city. And it's not a matter of choosing like, do we do downtown or do we do this more suburban spot? It's no, we have to do everything and we have to do it quickly because it's part of Edmonton's climate strategy and our energy transition strategy. It's part of our plan for growth for the city through the next 50 years. And it's all of, it's part of all these plans because it just makes sense. You want to live in a city where you're happy and you're happiest when you can walk and bike and live your life relatively close to your house without having to drive across the city half an hour just to do anything at all. That actually brings me to my next question. You don't just roll through town. You're an urban canoeist. Like you're sort of the poster person for dispelling the myth that the outdoors exists far away from the city. <laughs> How did you get into that? So I was born in small town, Alberta, but my parents are both immigrants from Hong Kong and China. And so I did, I did not grow up outdoors. I had a little experience with the outdoors. I, when I started cycling in Edmonton, again, I did it because I got tired of waiting for the bus. So I didn't really, I didn't do it because I loved outdoor activities or had really any experience or familiarity with that. But when I started cycling, that's when I discovered Edmonton's River Valley. And we have this extraordinary linear park, linear-ish park that runs through the center of the city that's largely undeveloped and has lots of trails and forests and, and the river. And later on, I got a job at the outdoor retailer Mac as a bike mechanic. So I didn't know anything about any of the other activities or stuff that went on there. I, I didn't, I'd never really been camping or hiking, certainly didn't know anything about canoeing or skiing or anything like that. And part of that was because I didn't really have a community of people to introduce me to any of those activities. The people who I did know who did do those kinds of things, they'd all been doing it with their families since they were kids for the most part. And they, so taking me as someone who had no equipment, no knowledge, no experience, on like your backcountry hiking trip or your paddling trip or whatever like that, it's, why would you, that's a hard ask. But working, when I got this job, then I got to go on all these trips that were organized by work. And so that was my introduction to cross-country skiing and to camping and hiking and canoeing. And so grateful for that. Uh, and I mean, so, so it's changed my life so much. And so now I love, I just love taking people on all of these activities, knowing that they know nothing and knowing that like often if you're going on a trip and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, all of my gear is borrowed. I'm definitely going to be the slowest one and making a space where people can be like, where, where someone could come on that and be like, and that's okay. Cause that's entirely the expectation that I'm here to yeah. learn, which well, that was my experience at all these work trips. They were, they knew that they were teaching trips. They weren't there for like to reach goals or to like summit or anything like that. They were there to learn and experience and in many ways to fail. And uh, yeah, so I bought a couple of discount canoes for myself and now, and then again, I don't have a car. So how do I get to the river with a canoe? I bought a canoe bike trailer, funnily enough from it is a Canadian company that makes these canoe bike trailers. Of course it is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now, yeah, so now I can just invite a friend over and be like, you got a few hours free, bike over to my house in 20 minutes and we'll go canoeing. And yeah, I can just roll down to the river with my canoe, throw the bikes in the canoe and then go for and go for a nice paddle. And it's funny, one of the, one of the people who's actually much better known for like canoeing in the city than me is Dr. Darren Markland. And he actually lives not that far from me. And so uh, I was just biking home after canoeing on the river one day. And he, we passed each other and he saw me pulling my canoe and he's like, oh, and he bought himself a canoe and a trailer. And, and now there's actually quite a lot of people in Edmonton that either with canoes or kayaks or pack rafts do this bike and boat thing on our creeks and rivers. And it's so now there's this kind of little community of, I don't even know what to term it, but you know, this, this bike uh, combination that exists in Edmonton and it's so fun. It's so fantastic. It's one of my favorite 
things to do just floating down the river so serenely. And it's so accessible in Edmonton. It takes me 10 minutes to get to the river from my house. I paddle for float for a couple hours. I end up in downtown Edmonton and then I just bike home from there. And we have such an asset with the river running through Edmonton. When I started doing this, probably about 10 years ago, it was very rare for me to see anyone on the river, even though it's so accessible. And it's, you talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, I've been canoeing on the river once five years ago. Yeah, that's so nice. <laughs> like, oh, I go every weekend. You should come. It's always such a thrill for me to be on the Oliver Bond, which we're renaming as a city. And for anyone outside of town, you won't know where that is. But it is a main corridor into downtown. And it is on my daily commute to get from my house to the university. And it's always such a thrill for me to see someone going through with like a canoe or a pack raft and just squeal with delight. And yeah, it's felt like over the last kind of three, four years, that has also really exploded and not something you would expect in the northernmost major city in the continent. Yeah, it, it's actually something that is also similarly becoming more common in places like Ottawa, where you've got that canal that people will skate on to get to work in the winter and then they can paddle on it in the summer. Edmonton, the way our city is laid out and because we don't have that development in our relatively deep river valley, it's, it can be hard to kind of integrate that into your commute. And certainly if you're doing it with a full-size canoe like me, you need canoe parking at your destination <laughs> if you wanted to actually commute. But yeah, it's, I've lost count of the number of people that I know of personally who actually have the ability to bike and paddle. But yeah, and then in the winter time, I, I love cross-country skiing. And so I made a little kind of attachment uh, for my cross-country skis. I've um, seen it. I actually, it was the inspiration for mine. I didn't know it was your bike, but I saw it parked outside a coffee shop and I took a photo of it and I put it on Twitter and someone let me know it was you. Amazing. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just really excited. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, so for me, it's, I will go, I'll bring friends and we'll bike out to the nature, nature preserve and, and go for a walk out of the city or go for kind of these bike rides for fun. But for the most part, the bike is still just my tool to get around. And what I do for fun is canoeing or skiing or actually, I really love grocery shopping. And so I'll organize tours with friends to go like, Mm. It's mango season. Let's go down to like little India and get some fancy imported mangoes or hello, let me take you on a tour of Chinatown because, because you're intimidated by all these Chinese stores and they're fantastic. Let me show you around or let's go up to little Lebanon and get baklava and fritire and manakish. And yeah. And so the bike is just how I get to what I'm interested in doing and I have fun while I'm getting there and the bike is so like yeah I can organize these rides with friends and you can have like a dozen people and it's you have a, such a great time getting to your destination and you can chat and you can you can stop and, and point out birds and trees and you can do all these things that like if we were all just being like hey, let's all get in our cars and drive to the grocery store and meet you at the grocery store. And it's like, I would not want to do that. There's oh. no appeal in that. And even actually like the bike canoeing, it's different if you were on a lake, on a river where you don't end up at the same place you start. You have to do shuttling if you're using a car. And I hate car shuttling so much. It takes so much time and it's such a hassle and you need so many cars and drivers. And so it's actually a lot more convenient to just bike with the canoe than it is to, to drive for the city. So yeah, the bike, it's lovely to be outside and it really enables a lot of that kind of connection and community. But I don't think about the bike that much when I'm actually on it. I'm not there for the bike ride there for everything that it enables and it provides access to. So um, the one thing that I know everyone's going to ask, what about winter? Winter cycling is relatively easy in Edmonton now. And it's hard for me to imagine and to remember even what it was like when I started winter cycling in Edmonton, because it, it was a lot different back then. But I started, I think probably around 2003, basically the same time when I started just biking period. So I biked that summer and then winter approached. And I was thinking about that, that 
chase after the bus and I didn't want to do it. So I basically just kept riding as the snow fell. And that first winter, I didn't really do anything besides keep riding. I had an old 10 speed road bike and no particular winter cycling gear. Like it was only my, like my first year cycling. So I barely had a cycling specific gear at all. Um, so I just put on my coat and the winter gloves I already owned and just kept biking. And it was hard. And back then the city didn't actually consistently clear bike paths. There weren't that many bike paths and they weren't cleared in the winter of snow and ice. And the road, also the roads weren't that well cleared either. So there was a lot of walking at some points, but these days it's so different. And it's so much easier to get into uh, winter cycling. And again, for a lot of people, you don't actually need to do that much different depending on your route and how far you have to go and how well it's cleared. For a lot of people, they can probably get away with doing exactly what I did when I started winter cycling. <laughs> Just keep riding and put on whatever clothing you need to keep warm in. It's a lot like cross-country skiing in that you're having moderate physical output. So you're generating your own heat. So for most people, aside from maybe your fingers and toes and face, the cold isn't really an issue or it's not the, it's not the biggest barrier. So you, you can find clothing that keeps you warm. And in fact, for a lot of people, it's more a matter of heat management so that they don't overheat. But, and then Edmonton itself is actually not that, not as cold as people think. It's interesting because like you mentioned, we're kind of at Alaska level in terms of latitude. I was looking at a globe the other day and I realized we're also kind of at Mongolia level, I think. But you know, that, that doesn't actually tell you that much about what the climate is going to be like. We're, yeah. not, we're also not that different from, from like parts of England. So climate wise, we're actually quite similar to Minneapolis, only a couple of degrees different, even all throughout the year, not that different in terms of snowfall or precipitation. I think we get less and in general, we don't, we actually get quite little snowfall as far as winter cities and the average daily high in, in December, January, February, it's around minus five to minus three degrees Celsius, which is very moderate and very easy to dress for. We certainly get cold snaps for the most part. And again, you don't need to bike every single day when it's, if it's bitterly cold out and you don't want to do it, don't do it. But for the most part, you just put on your clothing and you get on your bike and you ride a bit slowly and carefully. These days, I don't ride that old 10 speed road bike in the winter. <laughs> I have, I have my winter bike, which is just a cheap old mountain bike with studded tires, 26 inch studded tires. And I have commercially studded tires. We also, we run workshops on studying your own tires like Edmonton does. So you can do it for five to $10 essentially to make your own studded tires. But, but yeah, it depends a bit on your comfort level of people often ask, do I need studded tires? Do I need front only? Do I need both studded tires? And it depends a bit on your comfort level and your budget and your route. So if your route is getting cleared to bare pavements all through the winter, which a lot of routes in Edmonton, that is the goal these days and to varying degrees of success. But, but for some people, they can just get away with just biking a bit slowly and carefully and not having to change it, change pretty much. For some people, their budget is a big consideration. And so they don't want to spend as much on two full stud tires or dedicated bicycle for winter. And for some people, their biggest consideration is I don't like the feeling of insecurity and I certainly don't like falling or the risk of injuring my hip or my knees. And so, and that's the category that I fall into these days, <laughs> pretty risk adverse. And so I have fully set of tires and I bike pretty slowly and carefully in the winter time. And I pick my routes to avoid anywhere where I'm uncomfortable and I can basically get around wherever I need to, which is mostly within the inner city without any worries or challenges for the winter. This past winter, and we'll see if climate change makes it a much more common kind of winter. We had so much ice rain and so much freeze thaw that it was hard for absolutely everyone to get around, no matter their mode of transportation, I think. And so, so that, that made it quite difficult. And then for like winter gear and bicycles, again, it all kind of comes down to your own individual considerations of budget, your comfort level, what you've got space to, to have around. But I, my, my fingers, my thumbs, especially used to get quite cold while biking in the winter. So now I have pokies 
which are like bar mitts on my bike. You can buy them, but I just made my own out of old scraps of fabric that I had and very rudimentary sewing skills. They're basically rectangles that fit <laughs> for my handlebars to go through. So, and again, that's kind of in part cost driven because I don't like spending, I don't have a lot of money to spend and I don't like spending money regardless. So kind of making stuff myself, it kind of fits in with the whole ethos of fixing a bike yourself. And most of my bikes are built up from parts and yeah. Amazing. I am, um, I fit in the same category as you. I'm a much higher risk tolerance on the skis than I do anywhere where there's traffic. So I was incredibly lucky. I'm short, very short. So I was incredibly lucky to find a beautifully working new to me bike on a swap that I use for winter. And and I did also get commercially studded tires and I take much longer routes to some places in the winter so I can stay on the bike paths for to not be in traffic in the winter because they don't expect you, right? There's a lot less expectation that you will find a cyclist. But I find that it's, I've been in winter cycling for five years now. And when I went into it, I was like, okay, like manage risk. And then sort of two months into it, I was like, I way overdid this. I sort of, I think I spooked myself. I got into my head. It's like, I don't need all of this safety management. This is really not very different from riding in the summer. Yeah, I know. I have a friend who rides a lot more, a lot less cautiously in the summertime than I do. And she also rides the same way in the wintertime than that. So like I tend not to have any falls in the wintertime. Like I will go through winters with just zero falls for the whole winter. And I have friends who more regularly fall in the winter and they just accept that as part of like how they ride and the risk that they're willing to accept. And yeah, and I think it just that if you're relatively cautious in the summertime, you just take that and apply it in the wintertime same way and yeah. experience the same things. And yeah, and even if you do fall in the winter, time you've got quite a bit of padding on <laughs> with your yeah. winter, you tend not to get road rash because if you fall it's probably because it's slippery you might land on snow or ice uh, and just kind of slide a bit and you can obviously can still injure yourself quite severely if you fall the wrong way or get unlucky and so i'm again quite cautious and you learn to you learn to anticipate like oh it's a four-way stop coming up and i know those get polished into glare ice so i'm gonna stop 50 feet back stop yeah. and i'll just hop on the sidewalk and Maybe walk my bike if I'm not feeling, if I'm not feeling it. And uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes I won't fall, but I'll drop my bike because I can tell this bike is losing traction and you're going so slow and you're so prepared for it that you basically just step off the bike and drop the bike and step away from it. Uh, yeah. And so, so sometimes you do that, but yeah, it's, if you can go outside at all in the winter, not on a bike, you can probably also go outside and ride the bike and it's not that different than when you're walking in the wintertime, you're a little bit more careful. You watch out for what you're walking on. And when you're biking, it's the same thing. You put on different clothing when you go out in the wintertime to walk or ski or run. Put on the same clothing to go for a bike ride. And yeah, you don't need to invest in a whole bunch of winter-specific gear or anything like that. And in fact, in terms of clothing, I generally steer people strongly away from winter cycling gear because the cycling industry is not based in cities like Edmonton. And so when they talk about winter cycling, they're thinking it is two degrees and raining. And so you get a lot of waterproof gear, but you don't get a lot of really actually well insulated gear. So if you've got any gear for any other kind of winter activity, that's probably going to be better for the most part than winter cycling specific stuff. You talked about how one of the commonalities for all cyclists, regardless of where you come from, what your background is, the feeling that your safety can, is sometimes not always certain. And there's a lot of conversation these days about bike-friendly cities. So what sorts of things do we need city planners to consider when it comes to encouraging people to cycle? Research has shown, and we know this quite confidently, even from cities like Calgary, is that when you build safe infrastructure, you will get more people cycling and you will get a broader range of people cycling. So for instance, Calgary, they built their downtown protected bike network and they saw a jump in the number of women who were cycling. And it was no surprise, but it was also borne out by the numbers. So I think, and when you do surveys, you find that for many people, the number one reason why they don't bike is because they don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable doing it. And if you are already someone who is pretty confident around the world, then maybe that safety issue, that comfort issue isn't enough 
to keep you away from cycling. But for a lot of people who's, who aren't kind of already feeling very safe in the world, in, in everything they do, that can be enough to, to deter them from cycling. So you built that safe infrastructure and you think about what that means for who's going to be using it and how they're going to be using it. So not everyone is biking downtown to go to work in an office tower. Some people are biking to schools need to get to schools or to, to the grocery store or to other places. And we also know that tends to be women more than men doing those kinds of things. So making sure the infrastructure goes to those kinds of places and, and that it's maintained year round, making sure that it, it accommodates different kinds of bikes. So you've got a bike with it, a trailer with your kids in it or a cargo bike. You need places that are secure to lock to. You need some of our bike lanes that we've built are very nice conceptually, but they're very narrow and you can't actually bike in them with a bike trailer. So many of our bike racks for securing your bikes um, are not designed for non-standard, non-traditional bike configurations. Leave it all bodies. There's a few places downtown where you stand the bike up into the wrap, which I I can do quite confidently with everything but my fat bike, because that is just heavy. But thinking about some other folks, like that would make it totally inaccessible. Yeah. And e-bikes are, again, a kind of, they're great. Oh, what is the phrase? E-bikes are really great for accessibility and enabling a much more broad uh, group of people to kind of choose that bike if they live very far from where they need to go. There's so many great things to say about e-bikes and there's so many reasons why a person would benefit from using an e-bike. So it can be that you're pulling heavy loads, uh, such as your kids. It can be that you've got long distances to travel. It can be that you're just not confident that your fitness levels will meet whatever your needs are in terms of transportation. It could be that you work in a professional office place where you need to show up in a very, and present in a very particular way, which there are lots of things we can say about whether or not that's um, something that that yeah should exist, but it does exist. If an e-bike enables you to, to bike to work and not break the sweat, great. And But they're heavy and they're expensive. So providing financial incentives to help people afford them and making sure that you don't have to carry them down two flights of stairs and then hoist them up into a vertical parking stall. It's things that we definitely need to consider. A lot of people that maybe haven't given it much consideration have the impression that if you bike and maybe you bike 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers, that you must be physically able-bodied and able to do things like carrying your bike upstairs or dismounting and walking 500 meters. And that's just not true. Like even if like for myself, able-bodied, the things I do on a bike, I clearly cannot do on foot. I can't walk 20 kilometers to the grocery store, buy 50 pounds of food and then walk home. Although I did that yesterday on my bicycle, but you know, for a lot of people, they bike because they can't walk 500 meters or they have difficulties going up and down stairs. The bike gives them the ability to, to have that mobility. And so I think a lot of our design needs to take that into consideration. Both like if you're designing your, your building space and your building access and, and thinking about where the bike parking goes, as well as on the streets for planners and engineers. Recently, you bike the Oliver Bond, the 102 Ave bike route. And so recently, of course, we had this closure for a summer long construction project on, again, one of the busiest bike routes in the city. And they gave this kind of three block detour with a not very safe crossing on one of the streets and their accommodations. So I met with the group that was doing the construction and what their initial response was to add a pedestrian push button on both sides of the intersection instead of just one side of the intersection. And I told them that like one of the problems with these pedestrian push buttons to activate the flashing lights is that you have to get up onto the sidewalk to push them. And if you're, if you're pulling, if you've got a bike with a, pulling a trailer with your kid in it, you can't really just leave your bike in the middle of the road, run up to the sidewalk to push the button. You also can't really bike up the sidewalk and navigate the tight turns to try to reach that button. So in addition to like just that still being really far from ideal, even if you could hit the button, but it's just not accessible, even though it seems like such a small thing from kind of that engineer's perspective. So try to keep those things in mind and think of the bike as not the not your, the person riding the bike isn't your like peak fitness, peak ability 
person, you've got to think about the infrastructure in terms of how do we make this universally accessible? And that's who you should be designing for it. Right? That's how you should be designing it. That's what you should be aiming for and thinking about. Oh, I, four years ago, at the end of the ski season, I broke an ankle. And that summer I was on campus and I was, so I was riding back and forth to campus. I had an old pair of shoes that I had, that I cut the sides out so I could get the boot on. And then discovered within probably day two, it's easier for me to get on the bike and navigate in between the buildings of campus than it is to walk. And that was a huge revelation for me. I and mean, it made me think through people with other mobility issues that aren't temporary. Are we really thinking of them when we're designing bike infrastructure? Yeah. One phrase that I've heard that I like is that we're all only temporarily able, like whether it's something like, yeah, you might break a, break a leg or an ankle, or you might have a long-term disability. But like all of us, eventually, if we live long enough, we're, we're going to have mobility issues. And uh, yeah, and really we, we should be designing everything with that in mind. That's a great insight. I really like that. Thank you. Something that comes up all the time is the myth of parking. We talk about, well, it's a trade-off, but it's, it's bikes or it's parking, one or the other. Do you have anything to say about that? We have such an overabundance of parking in North America, certainly. I think there are eight parking spots for every one vehicle in America. I don't know what the numbers are in Canada, but I would suspect that they're similar. We have 30 to 40,000 parking stalls in downtown Edmonton. And if you look at like a satellite view of the downtown, it's a lot of just service parking lots and mostly empty, plus all of the on-street parking. And up until 2020, every single development in the city has forever to have private parking stalls attached to it. So every single house in the city has garage space and driveway space. And we have so much space for storing your private property in the form of a car in the city that isn't already public road space. So I don't think there's an undersupply of parking anywhere. There might be, and you might be to argue that there's, that we don't have the right pricing for parking. Maybe it's overpriced in some places, maybe it's underpriced in many places, and maybe adjusting that would help to make people feel like there is a parking spot where they want it, when they want it for the price that they're willing to pay for it. But certainly I think a lot of the complaints about not enough parking is that people don't want to pay ever for parking. And I certainly understand the feeling when I'm in a car, I don't, I also don't want to pay for parking <laughs> until that payment becomes worth it. So I've been with people, for instance, like in a car driving to White Ave and they'll spend five minutes driving around the residential streets looking for a free parking stall on the street where they can park for free. And I just want to go to the play. I just want to go to the restaurant. I don't want to be sitting in a car driving around searching for a free parking spot. And I know there's a parking stall or a parking lot where it costs $3 to park the car for the night. I'm like, $3, take my $3, please. But let's just park and get out of the car. It is absolutely worth it. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> I think having people understand and appreciate that, like having a nice walkable streets with like street vendors and bike lanes and quiet space that's light on car traffic is worth having to park your car and pay $2 and walk a block. And I think nobody, this is another phrase that we often uh, use in the world of like bike advocacy, North American bike advocacy is that nobody goes to Europe or travels, goes on vacation for the free parking. No, nobody goes to London and goes, I love London. I love Paris. I love Amsterdam so much. Everywhere I want, I could just drive around a car and park for free. It's my favorite part. The free parking lot was my favorite part of my trip. Nobody says that. It's a pain to drive a car and park a car in New York City or in London or in Paris. Nobody's going there for the free parking. Seattle. It's a nightmare to drive in Seattle. Toronto or downtown Vancouver and Montreal. And the reason why those are some of them nicer than others, but the reason why those are nice cities to go to and nice cities to experience and to walk around in is directly correlated to the same reasons that it's hard to drive and park because the, the cars are not prioritized depending on where you are in those cities. But, but the nicest parts, the pe places that people like best are not car spaces and you can't have free abundant car parking everywhere and also actually have a nice city to live in. So I think there's certainly a trade-off that you just 
we just have to accept that if you want a better city, it's going to not be as easy to park for free everywhere. And also we can do a lot to making the city a better place to live, a better place to get around by bike or walk transit and still have a lot of free and easy parking <laughs> because we, we have so much already. And a lot of it too, is thinking about getting into more of the weeds of like planning and zoning and stuff like that. A lot of it is thinking about how to access some of these underutilized spaces that we already have for cars. So you've got lots of businesses that close at 6 PM and they've got a bunch of parking behind their building in the alleyway that doesn't get used or like even just a big old parking lot that is just empty when the business itself is closed. And then people are like, and I park in this business's parking lot after hours and leave my car here. Am I going to get ticketed? Like, you don't know. And so then you end up looking for something on the street or complaining about having to pay for parking. So we've, we just have to better use the space that we already have. And part of that, I think actually is turning some of it into bike lanes or into, into patios or into parklets, green space. Always up for a patio. Love a patio. That was, I, I keep trying to look for silver linings out of the last two years. They're hard to come by, but one of them, so many businesses got patios and I love it. Yeah. From there, I think there are a lot of things that people have known for a long time are good and will work, but just couldn't get the momentum to, to be like, just try it. Just close this lane of this road for the summertime and see what happens. I bet you everyone will still be able to get where they need to go. Businesses will do better and people will be happier and let people work from home. Like I bet you producti productivity will go down and people will be better able to manage their, their life outside of work. Yeah. And I think a lot of cities and not just in a North American context, but around the world, the pandemic really enabled them to experiment and demonstrate that we can do this. It will make things better and it will lead to an apocalypse of traffic. And so a lot of cities are now keeping and making permanent a lot of the kind of temporary changes that they made during the pandemic. And don't know of, I don't know that I can point to any examples at Edmonton that have been made permanent. There are some that are continuing to go and continuing to adapt as kind of pilot and temporary changes, but I can't think of any that have been announced as permanent changes. Not yet in my recollection, but yeah, the pilots are continuing for a lot of the open streets and extensions for businesses to continue to occupy sidewalk space for patios, meaning the adjacent parking space becomes walking space. Like those are continuing for this summer. Yeah. So I think Edmonton is also in a position where, you know, our, our bike plan came out and the implementation guide for that bike plan came out this, this spring. And so we're also in a place where a lot of those kinds of temporary changes were already kind of plan B, kind of more permanent planned changes anyways. So I'm not too worried about the fact that we haven't announced that all those changes that we did over the past couple of years are going to become permanent because I think they're already largely in the plans anyways. But yeah. So I've kept you way into overtime and I super appreciate your time. I've got just a few more questions. This is always fascinating for me, but it's so much more fascinating when it's my own town, right? To get these insights into all these things that I see, but don't necessarily understand the impetus for or like the underlying context. This has been amazing. So something that I ask everybody, what's one question you've always wanted to answer, but no one's asked you? I don't have an answer to that. I That's okay. I, I do know. I frequently, a bit less so these days, but I used to spend quite a little, quite a lot of time kind of arguing with myself in my head, coming up with uh, responses to the kind of common objections to building good bike infrastructure. So things like, where will we park? Where will people park? Or, oh, we shouldn't build these bike lanes because cyclists don't wear helmets or they break all the laws. Or this one time I saw a cyclist and they were homeless and a thief or something like that. And so I often will, and like, especially back when the city did a lot of its engagement in person and you would go to like an engagement event about, about some new bike lane that was coming in and you would talk to residents of the community or people who were interested and they would like raise these kinds of issues or they'd be like, oh, nobody bikes in Edmonton. Uh, you can't bike in Edmonton. It's winter, 13 months of the year. And all these various kinds of arguments, most of which clearly have no 
actual basis in fact, but thinking about how to respond to those is something I spend a lot of time doing. And sometimes you imagine thinking uh, about like kind of a, a snarky response that you actually want to give versus the much more diplomatic and optimistic response of like, okay, if I just, maybe if I present it to you this way, then you'll understand and accept it. And you know, sometimes when people come up with those objections, it is actually because they only care about their own experience of driving a car and they're not really, the words that they're saying and their objections about like, all cyclists should be licensed and insured clearly has no actual impact on their own life and doesn't actually mean anything. And they're just grabbing any objection, any reason to throw out to say, please don't change my life. I like the way my life is right now. And so you can present them arguments and they'll just move on to the next argument to say against it. But sometimes they're actually coming from a place of earnestness where they're, they've got like an actual concern, a legitimate concern about like, how will I access my house with this change? How will my elderly mother access my door? And then those conversations, I've had actual real life conversations with people like that, where by the end of it, they're like, okay, that makes sense. I understand that. It's a change that doesn't, that may actually have a small negative effect on some aspects of my life or an inconvenience in some ways, but overall it does, it makes sense to the community. I understand the reasons or, and sometimes it might just be like something like where it's like, oh, I don't bike. I'm never going to bike. There's a bike lane going in front of my house might impact my on-street parking. But you're telling me it will benefit me personally because my street will be quieter and my property values will go up. And you can kind of find reasons, you can find ways to engage with people like that. And so I kind of miss those conversations, having those kinds of conversations with people that I used to have at those kind of in-person events where you can actually help people to understand more than just like the maps on the table. But overall, I don't actually miss listening to angry people rant at me or having to like traverse the city several times a week to get to engage far-flung engagement events. It's nice to be, the online engagement is nice. So what's next for you? You're serving out your past executive director role. And so what's next for you? What's next for the society? What's coming up? It is very uncertain. I don't know what my role is going to be. We currently have no executive director and no president. So there are big changes with the with happening with the society. So hopefully we can get some new board members on who are excited about this kind of work, about the work that Bike Edmonton has done, as well as the work that Bike Edmonton could do to make the city more accessible, more livable, just a better place to live for more people and people that aren't necessarily the same kind of people that we're currently seeing and representing. So I think there's wide open opportunity for the society. And I don't know, I don't know what my role in that will be. I certainly, I love Edmonton and I love so much about Edmonton and I love the potential that Edmonton has. There, there was a long time actually where I was really questioning being in Edmonton because you work so hard and you go to present to like eight hour council hearings and you go to all of these meetings and you do all of this engagement. And then four years later, you're like, we got a three kilometer bike lane on one street. <laughs> Yay. And it was like, and you bike down the road and you get hopped at by your neighbor. You look around and just see all of these cars and all of this car infrastructure in the city laid out for cars. And you're like, why do I live here? I could move to a city that is decades into the future right now and enjoy all of the things that I'm advocating for and fighting for. Like that exists. There are many cities in the world where that just exists already. And yeah, and, and so there are many years where it's really considering like, why am I staying here and, and working so hard when I could actually just enjoy this now, it, rather than thinking about like when I'm 60, we might have a good, it might be a nice city to bike all over. But, but it's, a, it's looking so much more hopeful now with our current leadership and uh, the city policies that we have and a lot of the changes that have happened over the past few years. It's, I think I'd really love to kind of put together a kind of a brief history of like some of the photos and experiences of, of people in Edmonton over the past yeah. say 20 years. Mm -hmm. Just looking back, I randomly came across a photo um, of me pulling a canoe in downtown Edmonton like six years ago on 102 Ave. This, or yeah, I think it was 102 Ave, this bike corridor that we've been talking about. And it was before we had bike lanes. 
And that was only like five or six years ago. And looking at that photo, it's almost unrecognizable. It's so unfamiliar. So I think it'd be really interesting to look and talking about winter, when I started winter cycling, talking about and thinking about these experiences from not that long ago and like laying it out in a timeline with photos would be so illustrative and be so powerful, I think, to be like, wow, we actually have made a lot of progress and the city is so much better now than it was. We still have a long ways to go, but now we have, I think we have even more momentum than we have had over any of the past 20 years or so. So I think I'm looking forward to, to seeing what the city can become and what we can grow into years to come. Absolutely. And it's so hard to see the work when you're in it. But as someone who is not in it and as someone who is a beneficiary of it, it's incredible. It's incredible. So thank you for your biking across the city to advocacy meetings and far fun places and fighting with council and your continued work because it's made our city a better place. Yeah, and it's certainly not just me, of course, everyone else at Bike Edmonton, but also Paths for People is another local advocacy organization that has been so effective and so instrumental in the getting our downtown bike network and, and advocating for a lot of change. And they've been doing it with far fewer resources than us, but just like really focused and effective advocacy. And then, of course, just like all the citizens. I can, it's been a while since I've heard it, but I'm sure if you went on Facebook comments, you can find it right away. The comment about like nobody bikes in Edmonton. The fact is like the reason why we have what we have is because so many people bike in Edmonton and they've been so good at being vocal and, and writing to their counselors and, and advocating for change just as private citizens, not necessarily as members of an advocacy organization or like that, but people care so much because it's their safety and it's their daily experience. And it means so much to them because it also feels so good. And it feels, it's so just like you get on your bike and start riding down the street and looking at the trees and seeing your neighbors. And, and you're like, this, I needed this. I always need that. And it means so much to people. And they, they have, it's meant that even in the past city councillors who are definitely anti-bike, they won't say, they won't admit that they're anti-bike, but they're definitely anti-bike. But they like, when we got our downtown bike network, that was a unanimous vote. Even the anti-bike counselors supported it uh, because they know that there actually are lots of people who want it and were asking them for it. So like never underestimate the, the power of your kind of local political effectiveness, both just like at city council level, but even just hyper local on your neighborhood streets, the ability to make changes there, just like individuals, it's so powerful. Absolutely. This has been incredible. And I really can't thank you enough for your time. For our listeners, you can find links to Bike Edmonton in the show notes if you want to support them. For local listeners who maybe want to join the board, there's some positions available. Or if you are not local and you want to see some of the types of programs that you could perhaps encourage to implement in your own communities to, to help advocate for safer streets and biking for all. Thank you again. This has been totally incredible. Thanks so much. I guess I'll see you on the 102 Ave bike lane. Oh, absolutely. You will. <laughs> and uh, let me know if you want to go bike canoeing. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now that I do. Yeah, 100%. We're going we're gonna to go offline and we're going to schedule that. <laughs> Great. That is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Chris are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. This was an absolute delight for me. And if it was for you too, please don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope that you will join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.